Saudi Arabia had managed to situate itself within the Middle East to the Western allies because of its oil, for example, yeah. other Gulf states because of their resources. So Israel has managed to do that on the back of Palestinian um, ethnic cleansing and made itself an attractive proposition to those who want to do business um, in the Middle East. And obviously intrinsically linked to, you know, colonialism is the economic realm, which is, you know, the, especially now the capitalist, the neoliberal perspective, which profit, you know, reigns supreme of everything else. And so Israel has carefully and expertly made itself an attractive proposition. And so people overlook the realities on the ground. And like you said, completely, you know, dispel Palestinian perspectives and just decide to overlook everything that happens to Palestinians in favor of their preferred partner in the Middle East. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Hamza Ali Shah. Hamza is a British-Palestinian writer and journalist based in London. With family in the West Bank, he joins me to discuss the crisis in Palestine, its history, its roots in colonialism, economic extraction, Western hypocrisy, and the moral clarity that Western leaders are failing to grasp even when their own citizens take to the street in protest. We discuss the resources in the Middle East, the large deposits of oil and gas, and the long history of the West appropriating these resources by any means necessary. We discuss the failure of leaders in the Arab states to go beyond condemnation and take the kind of action that Europe and the United States was willing to take against Russia, for example, by means of wielding the flow of oil that they control to force Israel to follow humanitarian law. We discuss the weaponization of ideology as a means of justifying regimes and the trickeries that have been used to obfuscate the reality of Palestinian existence, including the complicity of the media, the rupturing of the narrative, the focus on religion, and the homogenization of Arab culture. Hamza is deeply nuanced and thoughtful, despite the dangers his family face, explaining that often the most they can do is laugh in the face of great danger. And whilst atrocities have been committed, he hopes for reconciliation and peace so that persecuted peoples everywhere may one day live without the shadow of oppression. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Hamza, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, how are you? Um, I'm good. I'm good or as good as one can be given the situation. Um, you know, this, this feeling of being so distant, watching things from the screen and almost feeling like you are there, but you're not, and you are trying to resonate, trying to, you know, put yourself in those the positions and then you do and you, it breaks you. Um, uh, so it's, it's tough on so many scales and obviously with the caveat that, you know, obviously it's much worse for people that are living. Um, and enjoying this nightmare. But like I said, as good as one can be given the circumstances. And your family, are they safe? Yeah, so my family in the West Bank are are okay. There is the element of, you know, increased settler violence, increased military presence, more raids. There was a raid in the the town which my uh, my family in West Bank reside in just the other day. Um, but even when they, you know, when they mentioned it on the phone, we spoke, they kind of laughed it off. Um, so it's it's that resilience that is, you know, it's endemic in all Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as far as that, as, as good as they can be there, they are, they are good. They, they're coping and health-wise, everything else is kind of the same. Obviously, they don't have access to Gaza as well. So they're watching on from the screens like us. So they're within occupied territories and still that sense of helplessness being uh, distant. Um, but yeah, obviously thoughts and prayers with, with Gaza and everyone is glued to their screens at the minute. 
Yeah, totally. I want to, in this interview, talk about the West Bank as well, because it's something that is not predominantly part of the conversation, um, even though it's a really revealing context, um, which kind of negates the Hamas argument mm-hmm. um, from the Israeli side. But before going there, let's start with why is Palestine in crisis? Let's bring it back. Um, I think because we're, there's a lack of moral clarity when it comes to Palestine, there's a lack of you know, there's a lack of backbone, if you like, from the international community. And we're witnessing in real time the what happens when there's a spectrum or a hierarchy of human life. And Palestinians have been relegated to the very bottom of that. And so you see, you know, the level of violence, we've seen the level of bombardment, the level of oppression, the level of torture that we see. And it just it's just played off, whether it's via, you know, the media avenues, whether it's via, you know, a lack of accountability. It's a total impunity for Israel to act. Um, the way it does because of who it's, um, you know, who is on the receiving end of that violence. And I think that's at the heart of it. Obviously, there is this particular chapter is, has a, perhaps a different starting point um, in terms of what we saw and how, you know, Hamas and Palestinian resistance dealt the first blow, which usually doesn't happen. And that perhaps gave him, obviously, like everybody knows those scenes, everybody, um, I know the media's been hellbent on condemning those scenes. Um, and every Palestinian I speak to has said, you know, that some of those scenes were horrific. But because that was the starting point in this instance, Israel has kind of upped the ante and they've gone kind of intensified the, the response. And as I said, because it's Palestinians on the receiving end of it, it's almost been acceptable or it has actually been acceptable. Mm. And this has been the response from the international community for 75 years, really. Yeah, it's been, you know, 75 years of ethnic cleansing, if you like, even before that, the Balfour Declaration kind of kick-started um, in 1917, 56 years of occupation, Gaza itself, I think close to 17 years of being under siege and blockade. Um, so there's, it's a multi-layered level of oppression that the Palestinians have been experiencing um, for so long. And as I said, in, in every moment, all we keep hearing is, for example, all oh, the two-state solution, or, you know, it, we, we ask Israel to, uh, to act within international law and you know, to make sure it observes human rights and everything. But Israel has never done that. It's never acted with that level of regard for any kind of, you know, uh, uh, legal or humanitarian uh, law. So there is, there is obviously the fact that every Palestinian knows that Israel will get away with it, but there is a sense that this time you'd like to think because of how bloody it is, because of how, you know, how dark it is, because of everybody, this is a genocide unfolding live on our screens. So there is evidence it has been captured. Um, and everybody would like to think it would be different in terms of the international community holding Israel to account. Why do you think they don't? I think multi, uh, a number of reasons. I think Britain, for example, has vested interest in terms of providing arms. And, you know, if you go back to the colonial mindset, Israel is seen as democracy in the Middle East against mm-hmm. these so-called violent rogue Arabs. Um, for the, for America, it's kind of the same. It's whole, keep having a power there that allows America to um, display its geopolitical ambitions, you know, keeping Iran intact, being, you know, an ally to, and keep, again, the same thing, um, I guess, keeping so-called Islamic terrorism, uh, under check and, you know, just having a, a, an option in the Middle East. And obviously Israel is, has developed its economy, has developed its, you know, it's, it's tech sector. So there's, there's a lot of things that Israel has developed obviously on the back of Palestinian occupation and oppression. Mm-hmm that makes it a valuable player in the Middle East. And so people, whereas the Palestinians, um, the context is obviously having been under oppression, having been under occupation, don't offer the same, I guess, quote unquote benefits, um, to the outside world. And so a lot of people are willing to look the other way and must be made clear as well. This isn't something exclusive to the Palestinians, um, and Israel in the sense oppression is, has always been overlooked if there are material or economic benefits, um, to be had, you know, or to, you know, if if the, the the occupying power or the colonial power, the aggressor, provides you the state or the, the international community or the world with something beneficial, and this is it's been a, t- it's a tale as, as as long as history. It's quite interesting to see how they get around this framing, right? This reality, uh, which is that very often there is a thing that an, a, a colonial power and its allies want resources, and that's why they go in. Um, and yet 
things are framed differently depending on the case. I mean, with Iraq, it was, you know, sort of like the safety of the international community, weapons of mass destruction. Um, and with Palestine um, and Israel, it's sort of been framed as this like religious war. Uh, can you speak to that? It's, it's very deliberate. Um, there is there is a religious aspect in, that is linked within in terms of the importance of, you know, Jerusalem and, and that, but that's religious across the board. And for example, we see Christians, Christians have been massacred in, in Gaza as well. Christians living in Gaza, Palestinian Christians. But it's very easy because by the very, the way that the kind of the discourse has been shaped for, you know, since 9-11, if you like, and even uh, before that slightly, is, you know, anything to do with a religious dynamic involving Islam is seen as, you know, terrorism. So the moment you invoke it as um, a fight against, for example, as against ISIS or ISIS life, Hamas, it begins, it, it shapes it in a way which is, okay, this is the, we're returning back to this, um, you know, the, the civilization, if you like, um, the West against the rest. And this is, you know, a, a battle for, a battle of ideas, a battle to save humanity, a battle to save morality, a battle to save the West from this, you know, these infiltrators. And so by framing it in an Islamic way or a, a, in a religious, uh, from a religious dimension, it almost gives them an excuse to act that the way they do. And, and it's, you know, the, it's enablers, uh, in international communities. But in terms of the, the conflict in and of itself, it, there's, there's not much religious, um, background to it in a sense, it's a colonial power, which is, you know, it's called settler colonialism, um, Palestinian ethnic cleansing, oppression, occupation. Um, and that is the, that has instructed the strategic objective of Israel for, for the last 75 years. And I mean, I suppose I can't expect you to answer this question. I can't expect any one person to answer this question, but, um, and I suppose we could look to the history of colonialism for, to pull out an answer. Maybe we can do it together, but <laughs> why, why wasn't Israel, um, why couldn't they just share? I mean, the fact that they came in and took land that wasn't theirs, terrible, disastrous, unforgivable, we should know by now. Um, but why is there this continued push to try and evict more and more Palestinians? Why are they seemingly adverse also to the two-state solution? It seems like they want a one-state solution and for that state to be Israel. Yeah, and this is something that I haven't hidden, especially this current iteration mm -hmm. of Israeli, the Israeli political class. I mean... Smotrich, way before he was elected the current finance minister, way before he was even entered the Knesset, I think he's got a, uh, almost like a manifesto, which talks about the, you know, Palestinians have to be evicted, expelled from their land. If they want to stay, they stay as second-class citizens, but under the state of Israel. Good In other words, yeah, there is no, they don't hide it anymore, which is perhaps foolishness of it from a political perspective, whereas Netanyahu and uh, Ariel Sharon and all the rest of them so expertly hid it, had this pretense that they're interested in Palestinian statehood but the Palestinians just need to, you know, they need to drop the arms. They need to, they need to accept the, the Jewish presence, etc. cetera. Um, but there is never, there has never been, um, any attempt to establish Palestinian state or to, to entertain Palestinian liberation. And, you know, it's been made clear from, from decades ago, David Ben-Gurion, he, he said in a letter to his son, just, you know, a few years before it became prime minister, he said, the Arabs have to go. We just need opportune moments for it to happen. So if you go back throughout history, all of, I mean, um, Golda Meir, she, uh, to paraphrase, she said, you know, the Arabs, this idea of Palestinian identity, Arab identity in Palestine doesn't exist. This is something that's been echoed to this day. I think it was Smotrich that said something similar. So this very idea that this is, uh, you know, the, the old age, um, you know, the, the, the phrase they say, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land, that's how it's always been characterized. And so this idea that they're, you know, they're not actually doing anything wrong because they needed a homeland. And so there was empty land and there is no Palestinian identity. There is no Arabs. Just the other day, I think a, a lawmaker in Israel said, why don't we just disperse the Arabs? You know, there's so many Arab states. Why don't we take Egypt, Syria, etc.?" Yeah. Because Palestinians previously lived in the time mandated Palestine and have lived on this land for so many years, for centuries. Um, but this idea is by, you know, completely dismissing this idea, it gives credence to the, the notion that, you know, actually this, we're not doing anything wrong. We're just inhibiting a land that was empty and we were persecuted. And so the two, the two worlds collide. Um, but yeah, like you said, there is, it's, it's, it's whenever the notion of sharing land is brought about, it's, it's always from the perspective that Palestinians don't want to share, but it's never, there's never any attention paid to the fact that the Israeli political, military and security class have for long dismissed the idea and made it clear that they won't entertain a Palestinian state in any capacity or any, any form of 
Palestinian autonomy or liberation. It's amazing how easy, easily the powers that be can rewrite history. Because if you look at the um, propaganda campaigns that went out um, prior to the Balfour Declaration in sort of, you know, the late, uh, I believe the late 19th, early 20th century, it was, you know, propaganda campaigns asking people to come to Palestine and come and colonize Palestine. That was the name of the land that was being used. And so to question even the identity of a Palestinian identity, the the validity of of a Palestinian identity, it's just to rewrite history. Yeah, exactly. And and like I said, it serves serves a purpose in the sense, you know, by completely changing the facts on the ground or obscuring the reality on the ground, you then give, it gives you an excuse to carry out your strategic objective. And it's, through the, you know, through lobbying and through, you know, influence and, 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 you know, political influence, if you like, in terms of making yourself a viable state, making yourself an attractive state, um, which we see with Saudi Arabia, for example, just so that it's not just solely focused on Israel in a sense, Saudi Arabia had managed to situate itself within the Middle East to the Western allies because of its oil, for example, yeah. other Gulf states because of their resources. So Israel has managed to do that on the back of Palestinian, um, ethnic cleansing and made itself an attractive proposition to those who want to do business um, in the Middle East and obviously intrinsically linked to, you know, colonialism is the economic realm, which is, you know, the, especially now the capitalist, the neoliberal perspective, which profit, you know, reigns supreme of everything else. And so Israel has carefully and expertly made itself an attractive proposition. And so people overlook the realities on the ground. And like you said, completely, you know, dispel Palestinian perspectives and just decide to overlook everything that happens to Palestinians in favor of their preferred partner in the Middle East. I did an investigation um, last week into the fossil fuels off the coast of Gaza that exist. And Israel and Palestine collectively, um, that land is sitting on half a, half a trillion dollars worth of fossil fuels, and the majority of it being gas. Um, the Leviathan gas field is the third largest in the world. And it was discovered only about a decade ago, a decade and a half ago. And this is really critical because right now, liquid natural gas is being branded as a transition fuel. Um, and so there's this push to try and get the world off of oil because we're running out, not because we've suddenly got morals um, <laughs> and onto LNG. And this really, really, really suits the United States because um, they are the largest export producer and exporter of LNG in the world. So if the petrol dollar sinks sort of the the gas dollar will come up um and they've also signed um sort of these uh, bilateral treaties with israel saying that israel's energy security is the united states priority and israel last summer as well signed a memorandum of understanding with the european union uh, to supply gas because they are are at, at a loss essentially since russia invaded ukraine and they slapped all these sanctions on the settling invading force, um, the hypocrisy of which has not been lost on anyone. Um, And so this economic context is absolutely critical in understanding why the West is kind of committing to 1984 Orwellian double double think and newspeak and all of these sorts of things Um, and why they seem unable to, and unable rather than even unwilling, why they seem totally unable to stop a genocide. Yeah, because as, like you said, there's always, there is always vested interests. There's always something that, you know, they have to, they have to offer an excuse. And there's always, like I said, it happens in Africa and people overlook it. When you, when you learn about, for example, the genocides and massacres over time, it, it only took me until I reached university. I was like, oh, hold on a minute. It wasn't just in Europe that these things happened. It happened, you know, across multiple continents. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's the fact that you have your backs covered by, you know, there's, there's business deals. And like I said, the UK is a prime example. They, they fund, they provide arms to Israel. And I think within a few days or a few weeks of this existing massacre, um, the US, the, the UK already, I think a few spokes, spokespeople, officials, um, said we, we don't intend to help any arms sales or anything like that. So it's, it's again, it's that vested interest because it provides significant money for them. That's their ally. You know, this is so called, And then that's why. That's a starting point. And then what follows is the robotic renditions. Israel has a right to defend itself. You know, they block the international criminal court's attempts. They block the international court of justice's um, attempts. They, you know, they try to nullify protests, any form of solidarity. Mm-hmm. 
they demonize the Palestinian movement. And at the heart of it, like, like we've said, there's multi-layered incentives, whether it's military, whether it's political, whether it's economic. But at the heart of it, is, it comes down to greed, a lack of morals, um, and just, yeah, moral bankruptcy, really. Totally. I think there's also the added layer of complexity. Of you create a world that is high in its energy demands, then you need to fuel it in order to avoid yeah. collapse or decay especially if you're committed to growth rather than understanding that it might be time for just another sort of um, uh, version of society. Um, and the oil, again, the oil lens on this is so interesting. So I've, I've kind of gotten a bit obsessed over the past few weeks, I think, um, because it's so... People just keep saying it's so complicated. <laughs> and it's like, I just don't think it is. You know, it's just, it, it cannot be that complicated that level of injustice cannot be that complicated otherwise we might as well give up on calling ourselves the human race and any sort of sense of humanity and so I went away and I dug up some stuff about you know Iraq um, and looked at like some CIA memorandums from the 70s and all this kind of stuff and essentially the whole push in the 20th century sort of um, mid 20th century what from the west was this panic of like the Arabs are sitting on all the oil yeah shit what are we going to do about it we need to break it up because they won't allow private companies to come in um saddam hussein nationalized iraq's oil in in 1972 you know so it's so interesting as well to see this as a kind of like power conflict between the true um real powers in terms of resources the global south it's the middle east it's everyone else but this soft power that the West has created by being behind the creation of the United Nations and the World Bank and the financial services and all of these kinds of things, that's what allows them to break apart these other power centers and invade also military as well. Um, but they are, it seems, running out of ways to do that, perhaps. And and when they when they are running out, that's when language comes into it. Like you said, mm -hmm. when you say it's complex or when you say, you know, this is oh, we're, we're trying our best and, you know, this is, Israel has a right to defend itself or, you know, calling it a conflict, calling it a clash. It, yeah. it just makes it seem like, oh, you know, there's just two irreconcilable narratives. What can we do? And like, like you mentioned, it's interesting because I remember reading something not too long ago and it said, if, if, if Iran opened up its markets tomorrow, do you think there would be this, this threat about the Iranian takeover of the Middle East? And that's not to sugarcoat or to whitewash anything that multiple countries in the Middle East, they all have their flaws. Of course, they do, just like every other country in the world. But this idea that, you know, Saudi Arabia are perfect and Iran is, this world doesn't exist in which, you know, every, if, you were, if you really want to focus on human rights abuse, then we can have a long conversation about Middle Eastern allies of the US and the UK and the world um, in the region. But it, ultimately, as I said, it's access to resources, it's access to, you know, um, and it works obviously both both sides because you provide the resources to the Western world and, and you become an ally and you become a player in the game because that's all it is at the end of the day, it's a game to them. Totally. Um, and, and, and as I said, if, if Iran tomorrow opened up its markets, you'd have, you'd have them invited, the, the, you know, the, the leaders of the Iranian world would be invited here, the, the, the carpet would be rolled out for them, they'd meet mm -hmm. the king. And, mm -hmm. and, and it, the king just, would say salam. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It, exactly. As I, I, um, I'm not sure if it, I know it was scheduled enough for it took place. The, the visit of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia was meant to visit the UK. But it's to say it's the exact same thing. That's a, it's a direct parallel. One is, you know, greeted with open arms because of the access that's been granted. The other is demonized, et cetera, et cetera. And as I said, there's no consistency. There's no moral consistency. It's all about, you know, political, military, economic. And as I said, the people at the bottom that always suffer are the, the ordinary people, the ordinary citizens who just simply, they get caught up in it, uh, irrespective of what happens. Um, it could be sanctions, it could be wars, whatever it is. Actually, ordinary citizens always pay the fatal price. Absolutely. It's interesting to look at like um, a leftist, to take a leftist lens on this as well and think, okay, so what nationalizing one's industries and keeping one's resources for one's own people essentially does means you don't get so entangled in the complexity of globalization, which means you can still take a political stand or you can still take a moral stand. Whereas like in a globalized capitalist world order in which everybody is dependent on one another and supply chains are so complex, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I was um, looking into the oil crisis um, after the Yom Kippur War, which was essentially the... Um, the organization of Arab petroleum producing countries 
um, did an oil embargo against uh, Israel and all of its allies. So that includes the United Kingdom, the United States, um, Japan, Canada, etc. And it caused a massive shortage of fuel in the world. And it was an amazing sort of political move, really. Um, but you can't do that today because Saudi Arabia has since allied itself with Western countries. And so it would be, it would cause more of a split than anything else yeah. um, in the Middle East. And despite the fact that that was what the uh, Iran called for, I think in the first week after um, Israel thrashed back at the Palestinians and Palestinian civilians, he was calling for an oil embargo. And, and that's, that's interesting because sometimes everyone, you know, there's, People suggest it's actually very simplistic and others say, you know, don't be so reductive and, and everything. But I saw, I saw something on Twitter, which said, you know, if you look at the Middle East and the, the resources surrounding Palestine, so in Saudi Arabia, in the Gulf, um, Egypt, all the rest of it. And they said, you know, they said, don't forget how the vast resources and how much of this gets exported to the outside world and mm -hmm. effectively allows the planet to run. Mm -hmm. And yet we couldn't get a bottle of water into Gaza. And a lot, a lot of people jumped on that and said, oh, don't be so reductive. You know, it's more complex than that. But, but no. it's not really. It's not, it's not complex. I mean, I've been arguing, perhaps simplistically, um, that why don't one of these oil states or states with uh, vast resources just say, Do you know, we're going to completely slash or reduce our, our production until Israel either withdraws or at least observes international, or even if you want, for the sake of their interest, you know, if we're going to go right down to the bottle and the, and the bare minimum of what they could do and, until at least a ceasefire is called. And so, you know, there, there is ways in which you can use your political influences, ways in which you can use the economic power that you so mm -hmm. crave and that you have. Um, and it's, it, it beggars belief because I hear so often that, oh, you know, but, but they send money over and they, they allow, you know, they help the rebuilding of mosques and hospitals and schools, which is of course appreciated, but this is also, a, there is a political dimension to this. And it, you know, it's not just about incentives for improving the economic standard of, of living for, for Palestinians. That's fine, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, um, allow the set of colonial structures to be, to unravel or to, to unpack them. Um, so as I said, there is, you, you, they can wield the influence that they have, the economic influence. And that, that quote did, did, it did, um, resonate with me because it, I mean, to this day, I think 500, just over 500 trucks of aid and, you know, convoys have been allowed into Gaza, um, in about a month and a half or a month and a bit, sorry, but that was how much was allowed or was needed per day before yeah. the siege. Yeah. So when you think of that and you think of who the neighbors are, who are the surrounding countries, what is their influence on the U S and the UK? They have some might, they have some influence. And Quite again, true. it goes back to, it's a, it's a, it's a decision that they've taken. So with it, the murder of Palestinians is they're effectively if not directly or indirectly complicit in, in the mass murder simply because of their inaction. Yep. Yep. I mean, one thing that Egypt could do would be to like block off the Suez Canal. Be like, you got to go around the Horn of Africa, bitches. <laughs> Here's that <laughs> for your supply chain. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's this kind of like economic warfare that Europe and the United States is really happy to play against Russia and against China. And I think now looking at, as you're saying, these like neighboring um, Arab states who like vocally are allied and vocally, you know, calling out Israel and vocally calling for an end. And some of them are even, you know, chatting up Hezbollah and, you know, again, seemingly ready to, to attack. But the real guns nowadays are not in military, unless you bring out the nukes, but in economic warfare. And they're not doing yeah. any of that. And I think that there's an element of like, what's starting to happen now in the West is people noticing that. And saying, well, hang on, like, why aren't these Arab states also doing more for their neighbors? Um, then it all gets a bit racist as well, because like the homogenization of Arab states. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and the thing is, if, so in, in Arabic, there's obviously a lot of the clips that do come out, um, they are transcribed and everything, but in pretty much every single clip I've seen of Palestinians in Gaza, they, they are in un. In, in the most unambiguous terms, you know, calling for the destruction of Arabs, not in that sense, but the direct translation is like, as in shame on you, in the sense, you, how are you allowing this to happen? And it's such a common sentiment mm. and often. Sorry, uh, these, these clips are coming out of Gaza and are directed at who? It's the Arab states. Right. So the Arab, the Arab leaders. So they say, you know, in, in Arabic, it would be, um, that in other words, shame on you. Like, how have you allowed this to happen? Like, yeah. I saw a clip yesterday where the person said, I've just. I've just buried my brother. What are you doing in, in, in Saudi Arabia or in, in the UAE, et cetera? 
And as you said, if all you have to do is look at the language, I think within a few weeks of this unfolding, the UAE issued a statement saying they're not going to, um, they're not going to put their, this normalization, you know, they were not going to put a stop to it. They're going to continue with their deal with, with Israel. And then Saudi followed it up, I think some days later saying, obviously the situation is tragic. We do still intend to normalize ties with Israel, you know, because of the benefits, et cetera. And that in a nutshell is, is why, um, one dimension in particular is that explains why the Palestinian situation is, is as tragic as it is, because I, I've been saying for so long and I accept I'm a bit of a cynic, um, I've been saying for so long, the Palestinians don't have any legitimate or robust international allies at the state level, certainly not at the, at the grassroots level It is, you know, it's limitless. The solidarity has been so refreshing. It's been so heartwarming and I don't subscribe to the idea that that's, that doesn't matter. A lot of people say, oh, but what does protesting do? And of course it, it continues a lot. And that we've seen in, I think in within the, the, one of the Fridays, the Friday that the, they they took the first time they took out telecommunications and it was in, yeah. in pitch black, they were bombarded. Like two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of in Jordan, they, they, they went out to protest in Turkey all around the world. And then subsequently statements followed from the, from the, you know, the, the respective government. Mm. So it, it can work. And that's always just one particular example. Mm -hmm. So I do, I do think we have, you know, limitless solidarity and, and, you know, support, um, and, you know, really good organizing and mobilization that we've seen in recent weeks at the grassroots level, but at the state level where perhaps the ability to act is, you know, there's more ways to act and, and, and more quickly, that's where obviously, you know, there's, there's a dereliction of duty and there's no real appetite to, to liberate or to free the Palestinians at all. I hope that this is all right, but I'm going to make a sort of comparison between the Palestinians and between civilians everywhere, because no, in Europe, we are not facing a genocide. But what has become increasingly clear, I think, especially with this, has been that our states are not interested in what we need, in what we think, in what we want, in what democracy should like. They're actually not that interested in democracy anymore. Um, and perhaps democracy was always an illusion. And so, I mean, the chant in uh, France, in Paris, when they go out, it's nous sommes tous les Palestiniens. We are all Palestinian. We are all Palestinian. And there is such an echo of truth in that that I find heartwarming and terrifying at the same time. And people have been really, people were really quick to point out in a resource scarce world, like this is what powerful states are going to do to any people. Yeah. To their own people eventually. Yeah. In Germany, obviously, protests are, are banned as far as, as, far as mm -hmm. I know. In France, it's the same, but they still, you know, people still take to the streets here. They try to, they try to demonize them. They try to, you know, they went to the, the playbook that we all, you know, we've become so accustomed to this crackdown on liberties, crackdown on, you know, the, the, the ability to mobilize, to speak. Um, but it's not working because like I said, on Saturday, again, people march, they, they expect, or they want, uh, about a million people to march. And again, it's. You know, when you look at the poll, 76% in the UK want a ceasefire. Neither of the main parties are advocating for that. Yeah. I mean, from early on, there was clear opposition to, to all what we did see, the tragic scenes. Again, nothing, nothing forthcoming from any of, neither the Labour Party nor the Conservative Party. To this day, there was a, West Streeting was on Newsnight and he was asked if Israel broke, um, is breaking humanitarian law, is breaking, you know, international law. The clip was two and a half minutes and I thought, oh, surely at some point he's going to give something substantial, nothing. Good they just So there's across the board and this is, you know, the, the next government will probably be a Labour one and that's supposed to be, you know, this progressive, you know, this progressive party, left-wing party, internationalist party, stands for human rights, stands against aggressors, which they did when it was Russia. And, and I think that's a point that <laughs> does need to be made clear. The party that opposes BDS, the party that's, that is you know, on the same page when it comes to criminalizing BDS and outlawing BDS. Keir Starmer called for tougher sanctions on, on, um, on Russia when Boris Johnson called for the, the toughest set of sanctions um, ever imposed or something along those lines. So there is a clear hierarchy. There is a, there is a double standard. And as I said, it's, they're so far, you know, that this so far, they're not in touch with the public, the public opinion across Europe, across Latin America across the Middle East is that, you know, they want Palestinians to, to be free, to be liberated, but the governments and respective, you know, leaders are simply not interested and they don't care that they're not interested. And I think that's the crucial point. 
Yeah. And we saw, I made the point to somebody a few days ago, I said, as much as there is hope, I also do remember 2003, Iraq and the, the public opinion and the kind of the, the, the significant, you know, everybody was on the same wavelength in opposition to the Iraq war. Tony Blair is still advising the Labour Party. He's still on Sky News, BBC East. So when people talk about, you know, the consequences, I hope there are consequences for all of these people. But it wouldn't be out of the ordinary if in 10, 15 years time, you know, Netanyahu is still making visits as a former Israeli prime minister and Keir Starmer is, you know, the, and, and Rishi Sunak and Swala Braverman are, are still these people that in this era, it ultimately didn't matter what their stance was because their lives are, are perhaps even more lucrative as a result of, of what, you know, the, what they allowed to happen. I mean, look at Liz Truss going around and giving people economic advice. It's, it's, a, I, I don't even have words for it. Like, it's like we live in a, in a mirror world where like politics only responds to politics rather than reality. Yeah. So because Bojo says one thing, Starmer says another, because Sunak says something, you know, Labour says something else. Um, and I think to me, what's so curious about watching this unfold and like, and we use this word, like our political leaders, they're not leaders. They're not leading us in anything. They're not taking any difficult decisions, making any of their own analysis. Um, and they're certainly not forging forward with a vision. They're just perpetuating the same status quo that got them into power. And like, I just cannot understand how morally bankrupt you have to be to purely desire power for the reason of enriching one's own pockets yeah. um, or one's the own class's pockets um, rather than actually doing something. And it's fascinating to me that that's kind of where we seem to have gotten globally with like the odd exception, like the Spanish health minister, yeah. uh, Lula in Brazil, although he's now being criticized for not taking a hard enough stance. You know, there are these like people, but generally we've created a, truly a political class. And with, it is, it's, we've kind of internalized and accepted, actually, you know, you have to take in consideration the political arithmetic or, you know, the political calculations, but actually, Bollocks. I mean, just why can't I, I said this the other week, why can't people just look at what's happening in front of them and offer an opinion? Because everybody has an instinctive opinion. Mm -hmm. So the moment you saw the scenes or the, that moment you're seeing the scenes in cars, everybody has an opinion, whether they express that opinion, whatever they write, whatever they tweet. That's different, but they have an instinct and they, they know what that thought is in their head and, and everything. And why not just, why is that not the, why can't that be the, the line that you, that you take? When you see children's heads being blown off, when you see yeah. hospitals being flattened, when you see scores being, I think 90 plus UN workers have been, have been killed. I think close to 40 journalists now yep. as well. Like that, in every sense of the word, that is, that is, it's ethnic cleansing, it's mass murder, whatever the words you want to use, it, it fits, it fits the bill. Then I read an article in the Times which said, you know, actually Keir Summers made the calculation if he loses the Muslim vote or the vote of those sympathetic to Palestinian cause, he'll then seduce the so-called small C conservatives and conservative voters or former conservative voters. And it's like, why is everything a political calculation? That like people's lives are being taken in the most brutal way. And your first, your, you know, your first uh, thought is, okay, but how can I make sure that in 2024, when people go to the ballot box, they remember what I did and how. I mean, it's, it's utter nonsense. It's, mm. And that's why it's the, so I go back to the very first point I made, which is a lack of moral clarity. There is mm. no, there is no, there's no, no one has a backbone anymore. No one's honest enough. Everyone mm. is just operating the human, there is a human hierarchy. And there's also an interest, okay, how, how important are these humans to my foreign policy or to what I want to do? Mm. And then you then operate according to that. Oh, okay. Are these fairly important? Yeah. Okay. Now let me take a certain line. Whereas actually a child being murdered in Gaza is no different to a child being murdered anywhere else in the world, irrespective of you have ties or if they're an ally, you need, you simply should stand up for humanity. But obviously we can say that till the world ends and we'll be speaking, it's like speaking to a, to a wall. It's, it's ridiculous. But only amongst the few, right? Amongst the many, it's very easy to speak to our collective humanity very easy to do the right thing, very easy to say the right thing. I mean, people are losing their jobs over this and like happily so, quite frankly, um, willing to take a stand. But I think, I really like this term moral clarity, but I think something that maybe we should try and get into, which is where people tend to trip up and, and get rightfully confused is like, but what do we do about the Hamas thing? Because um, 
you know, they are identified as a terrorist group. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I'm not saying that that is the equation that's going on here. I'm just saying that that is something that we are aware of. We know that Netanyahu funded them. Um, we know that they are a response to occupation as well. Um, and yeah, the, the scenes from October 7th were horrific. Truly, truly, truly horrific. No, nobody deserves to die. Nobody, no civilian deserves to die in the way that they have died since this particular um, instant has kicked off, but also over the past 75 years. Um, but maybe this is when we bring in a comparison between like Gaza and the West Bank now, because Hamas is not in the West Bank. But how do we clarify or what clarity can we shine on the fact that Hamas exists and it makes it difficult for a lot of people to align themselves with the, the sense of resistance out of the justifiable, understandable and correct position of being against all kinds of violence. And it's interesting just on the point about civilians, because I've, I've been a bit surprised in the sense, you know, when somebody's asked, you know, do you condemn what Hamas did? And they say, yes, I do. And I condemn all civilian life. Such as this, you know, this hierarchy we keep referencing that that's not seen as an acceptable answer, if, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's yes, that I can completely condemn that. And then they say, and as, and I, I too condemn what's happening to civilians in, in Gaza. And that's seen as how dare you put the two together. We're asking, it's not what about true. It's just simply saying, I, I wish that neither side had to suffer some of the, some of the atrocities that they have suffered. Um, mm. and it goes, it goes back to your point that the. the the easiest way I think to understand Hamas is firstly that there was a poll, I think not too long ago, which said, I think they, they enjoy about 50% support, something like that in, in, in Gaza. So again, not every Palestinian is Hamas and Hamas is not every Palestinian. And at the same time, they were founded in 1987 and Palestinians have been displaced, terrorized, ethnically cleansed since way before that. So Hamas is, is a way of understanding particular dimension of, of what's going on, but it doesn't explain, you know, Hamas's existence doesn't explain why um, Palestinians were expelled in 1948, because that's purely to do with Israel's or the state of Israel's strategic objective. And I think it's been very carefully um, and ex expertly, I think, framed in a sense by drawing a comparison to ISIS is, you know, because everybody re remembers those years from like, I think 2014 onwards, when it was like in Paris, in Barcelona, in Brussels, in Manchester, yeah. when you equate and Hamas to that, ev everybody has such vivid memories of, you know, the, the sheer inhumanity and the Palestinian, um, head of the Palestinian mission to the UK, he said it on, I think it was Piers Morgan's show. There was no comparison in terms of the, the strategic objective of Hamas and ISIS. ISIS were all about pure destruction. Hamas, if we, we might, and some of us do disagree with perhaps their strategy or the way that they do it is ultimately they're only concerned with the Palestinian cause. They're not interested in, for example, liberating Iraq, which you could argue maybe they should be, but they're interested solely on the, it's purely Palestinian resistance through, um, through, you know, that the means that they, they advocate for and, but they've now completely been delegitimized because anybody who is everyone being thrown in the same camp, Hamas is Palestine, Palestine is Hamas. And so that's why we're now seeing ironically. The Israeli official saying, and, and Blinken yesterday, Secretary of State, U.S. Secretary of State saying, well, we want the Palestinian Authority to take over Gaza. But you've been at odds with the Palestinian Authority for mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. 30 odd years. Like mm -hmm. you completely opposed and you, you, you know, there's, that's what's so, it's, it's a, it's a pick and mix approach. And mm -hmm. you drew the distinction or the comparison to the West Bank. I think just about half an hour ago, news came through. I think seven, seven Palestinians were murdered in Janine in a raid. I think that takes a toll up to, I think it's definitely more than a hundred. I can't, I don't know the exact figure. Um, but again, if, if, if the argument is that everything we're seeing in, in Gaza is to eradicate Hamas, they have little to no influence in the West Bank. Why are Palestinians being killed there? And if somebody can, somebody needs to be asked that question live on air, whether it's the Israeli ambassador, whether it's the Israeli spokesperson, whether it's the IDF spokesperson, somebody needs to be asked since this is all about Hamas or so you claim, um, why? Why is, why is the Palestinian Authority run West Bank being, being, why are Palestinians in that, in that region being, being murdered as well? Well, what are these raids? Because we spoke about um, military presence and settler violence. Maybe we should explain that as well. Settler violence is, you know, Israelis coming in and sort of being given the, the homes, right? Of uh, Palestinian people ejecting Palestinian villages and also, you know, committing 
physical violence against uh, the Palestinian civilians, right? Yeah, so there's the settlers have effectively let's not forget, I think there's um there's a few settlers who are now in, in office in Smotrich and Ben Kavir. So you've got that ideology which is of, you know, ironically, which is in the Liquid Party's um charter, which effectively says from the river to the sea that Israel it will it will be one Israeli state, which you never hear any condemnations of, very ironically. Oh, interesting. In whose charter, sorry? The Likud Party, the ruling, uh, the ruling party, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, and uh-huh. actually Smotrich himself, Bezalel Smotrich, the finance minister, uh, has effectively called for the same. As I mentioned, he's got like a, a manifesto in which he says there is only there will be only Israeli sovereignty. Ben Gavir was on Israeli TV um, some months ago, saying sat opposite a Palestinian guest and saying to him, "Back with all due respect, my rights and my family's rights and the Jewish people's rights have." You know, we have more right to travel to move around in the West Bank than you do. So, I mean, this is so explicit and, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, there's, but, but the Palestinians who are under, who are oppressed, who are under occupation, they have these aspirations, even though they don't have the capabilities, clearly, they have these aspirations apparently to completely expel and exterminate the, the population in Israel, even as Israelis, the, or the Israeli state expel the population, the Palestinian population in the West Bank and Gaza, um, so there's, like I said, some discrepancies, but yeah, so the settlers have, especially in the last, well, before October the 7th, um, which has been, you know, created this as a starting point, it was still the, the worst year for settler violence in the West Bank and the worst year for Palestinian fatalities in the West Bank since at least the early 2000s. Um, so this has been a year in which the settler movement has been emboldened because it has, it, it's got a, a government that is so far to the right that is allowing it. There's been an increase in the settler outpost. There's been an increase in, you know, um, the number of um, settlements that have been um, given the green light. There's been a number in uh, an increase in home demolitions and the fall of Palestinians in the West Bank. So there's been an increase in the kind of the core aspects of the settler movement, um, and that's been that's now been intensified of late. So people are in the West Bank. So from my my family have told me people are sending messages to each other in the West Bank: avoid this route, avoid that route, because that's where the, set, the settlers are at the moment. There's an article in. Um, it's been published in Declassified by Peter O'Ball, who's in the West Bank at the moment. And he's talking about the fact that there's a reign of terror um, presently where, you know, the Israeli police or the Israeli security officials don't do the work, but the settlers do their work for them and they just offer the cloak of protection. Mm. Um, so this is something that's been ongoing way before uh, anything happened or, or Hamas did anything or even breached a millimeter of the border in, um, in southern Israel. And it's that, it goes back to, it's multifaceted. It's about if it's not direct bombardment of Gaza, it's home demolitions in the West Bank. If it's not, it's Israeli settlers who are actively, um, you know, playing a part in expelling the population. It's the Supreme Court greenlighting the decision to knock down a house and displace a family. If it's not that, then it's Israeli forces shooting at protesters or, you know, telling them that, you know, we're going to use this as a firing range, which is happening in Masafriyad. So, you know, there's so many different dynamics to it, but now the settler movement has been emboldened significantly. And as I said, there's been an increase in raids. There's been an increase in, um, you know, their, their presence and a lot of them are armed. Um, so there's been, violence has gone up tenfold in the West Bank this year, but especially in the last months. And that's why whenever someone speaks on Palestine or on Gaza, or on, it, you have to include the West Bank in as well, because at the moment, perhaps it's, um, you know, perhaps the situation might not be as tragic in terms of the sheer number and the scenes that we're seeing, but there is nevertheless as a part of the strategic objective of, you know, Palestinian ethnic cleansing and demolition and land theft and occupation is still being carried out in the West Bank, where again, Hamas has little or no influence. These raids that you're talking about, is that just the military going in to Palestinian homes and what for? There's no... There's yeah, no so, yeah, so they, they claim that these are people that are linked to groups that want to, you know, eradicate Israel and basically people that are pose a threat. So what they do, and this is, again, this is collect, there is an aspect of collective punishment, which has actually happened. Now, and I'm sure it was Bet Salem, the human rights group in Israel, um, who, who mentioned collective punishment before Gaza. And they said that, you know, homes are being flattened by the Israeli forces because they suspect one person living in that home has plans or is linked or has, there's been some sort of intel that they're a, they're a threat. But what about there are other 15, 16 people living in those homes? And so these raids have been ongoing from the beginning of the year, Janine, Nablus, Jericho, in multiple areas in the West Bank, um, on, under the premise that, you know, they're targeting specific individuals who pose a threat 
And a lot of the time they go in there and they just murder, they murder innocent um, Palestinians. There was a clip, I think some, I think around June, July, um, of a random person walking, I think it was in Janine, and he hit a sniper, shot him in the back of his head, and he, and he died. Now, what threat did that person pose? So the, the premise is that you're in Janine or you're in Nablus because of, you know, you're trying to, ex, ex, you know, like get rid of this, this Palestinian threat. But again, every Palestinian is seen as a threat because it's not simply fighters or people who are resisting or supposed escaped prisoners or whatever it might be. Um, it's just, it seems to be any Palestinian is seen as collateral damage in this, this objective of whatever this horrific objective is from the Israeli yeah, state. whatever it is. I mean, it's hard to... It really is hard to grasp now what more they could possibly want or need. That yes, there's the the resources of like if you you know you're sitting on all of that money, you should share it with the Palestinians. That was what the UN said in 2011 in a report. They haven't. They're going to ignore UN directives. We know that. So there's such a kind of like malevolence in this that is hard to wrap one's head around. Just anecdotally as well, I was in the so I was in in Bethany. In Arabic, Azariya, Bethany, which is a, it's actually a, um, it's a, it's got importance in Christian history as well in Palestine. That's where my grand my grand uh, my grandmother resides, and, and my family in the West Bank. And I was there in May, and on one side is a separation wall, and on the other side, as you begin to leave the largest settlement in the West Bank, the largest Israeli uh, illegal settlement, Malo Damim, is just on your right. And as you drive, there is no way of leaving that town that we're in without passing through the road of which the settlement is above. And it's, the dynamic's interesting because it's, it towers over you. In other words, it, you're at the bottom, it's at the top. And it's interesting, when I was there, I used to, you know, so internalized is the occupation for my family. My family, every time we'd be driving, driving through it, my face visibly changes, like, you know, the frustration. And they just say, what were you angry about? This, this isn't going to change, just, just, just accept it. And my auntie actually, on one of the last days that I was there, she said, oh, by the way, did you know in Man Adamim, so there's a, a patch of like a, a garden, basically a park. And it's got, I love, like in Amsterdam, I love Amsterdam. It's got, I love with the heart, M-A, Malaz, I mean, the settlement. And she goes, oh, if you want, we can go and visit that. They've now allowed Palestinians to visit the, the, the park. And I, and I, she kind of made it as a joke, but, but I remember thinking like, isn't that mental? First you, first you steal the land, then you expel the residents. And then, you know, you grant them the permission to visit that land when you decide to do so. And it was, I remember, I remember thinking that it's just, it's mental. And to my family members, it is something you can laugh about because, you know, so internalized. I mean, if you're going to get angry at every checkpoint that you cross, you'll live a very angry, you'll live a very angry life. And unfortunately, they, I remember my, my uncle made a joke to me. So as where he goes to work is just off the area of the checkpoint enters Jerusalem. And so. Can you imagine like there's three lanes and he takes the fourth thing, which takes him basically remains in the, in the town of Azariya, um, a smaller town just off it. And I made a joke to him. I said, well, what happens if you do actually just, just rather than take that, right? Just continue straight and head towards Jerusalem. He looked at me, he goes, well, they'll shoot me. And he laughed. He just laughed it off. And it is, it is something very real. Wow. That concern that if, because we also have number plates. So if you, the Jerusalem number plates are yellow and the ones in, in our town are white. So they know automatically who's coming through. If it's not a yellow knob, that's a, that's a threat. And it happens all the time. So many Palestinians are shot at the, at the checkpoint. Um, and like I said, even just that, the settlement, the, the separation wall, you know, the, the joking of, you know, oh, we can enter, they've given us permission to re-enter the land that they, that they stole off us. And then the fact that, you know, yeah, they might shoot me. In other words, it's so, it's internalized that your life as a Palestinian means you could die at any point, which is, we don't have to, I don't have to live with that here. In London, I mean, it's, I can practically do what I want, and obviously within le legally anyway, um, <laughs> without without the fear of thinking, you know, if I go through this road, I might get shot. But like I said, it's when because I was there for the first time in in about twelve to thirteen years, and I saw it as a Palestinian. I know how it is. My mom's told me so many stories. My dad, my grandparents. But when you see it, I, I completely understand why people say it radicalizes you because I'm already as radicalized as one can be radical in the sense of, you know, wanting change. Um, and then seeing it up front is, is sometimes it's so crushing. And just to see, you know, as I said, when you're, when you're driving, you can't help but notice the settlements at the top and they're so vast. The land is so clean, everything, they've got houses that, and you know, the way that it's been built that we wish we had, we live in little, small, little, you know, 
houses which I've just made just just to you know just to accommodate whoever it can. And then you drive past the settlements and you can't enter, you know, there's signs, you can't enter here, you can't enter there. The checkpoint, they stop you. And if, if you want to go back to the other side of which Palestinian areas, like Abudis, like Bethany, um, those ones are, you know, you can only go so far because on the other side is the separation. And so it's, it's mental. It's when you internalize that, you realize if it's not direct ethnic cleansing, as we're seeing in Gaza, there is then taking place land theft, displacement. Um, oppression, dehumanization, and just another point, the number of prisoners, the number of detainees has gone up. It's significant. It was already, at, at, again, this year at a record high, um, especially those without charge or trial. That's gone up significantly in the last few weeks as Israel kind of intensifies its crackdown. So there's so many ways in which when you talk about um, Palestine in crisis, I mean, there's so many ways in which it is in crisis and the Palestinians are in crisis. Because there is a one level of oppression and the psychological toll, by the way, is huge. When, when you see in terms of having every single day to, to live that, that's, that's why I understand why jokes are made from my family members about let's go and visit that park on illegal land. Because if you're not going to joke about it, how else are you going to, you're going to cope with it? Do you think this could ever be or should ever be forgiven it i think there's reconciliation always does happen or does need to happen in order for you know for a lasting peace to take place but it, it would have to be it, it'd have to be in good faith i think some of those the only way it can be forgiven is is if those people are who have orchestrated this who have dreamt of this for so long who have wanted this for so long is when they're held to account properly and we're talking about, you know, international criminal courts. We're talking about actually having Netanyahu has, should never be allowed to walk freely ever again. Mm -hmm. Neither should Gallant, the defense minister, neither should other, I mean, human animals is what they call us. They're talking about, um, it's not accuracy, but damage and destruction. They're talking about, you know, why don't we dispel these Palestinians? The intent is there. And these, the only way in which any, and I think now more than ever, the only way in which Palestinians will be able to move on, I think, or at least entertain a conversation about a genuine lasting peace in which the settler colonial structures are unpacked, that are, they are dismantled. So too the apartheid mechanisms that, you know, instruct everyday life. It's only when those who have perpetuated that, those who have enabled that are held to account properly. And I think that's when you can accept, okay, we're not just, our trauma is not just being brushed under the, under the carpet, but there's actually an intent, a legitimate and robust attempt to, to actually hold these because they are, they're war criminals. Those war criminals need to be held to account. Yeah, I agree. It's so sad to think of the, the history of persecution that begets more persecution. And again, this thing of like power and resources and, you know, the, the history of how Europe was so cruel to the Jewish people for 2000 years. And then for this kind of mass emotional gaslighting to happen in which they went, oh, do you know what? No, World War II, the Holocaust, no, that was really bad. So we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't that because Jews weren't allowed into, um, you know, they didn't increase the emigration numbers even during the Holocaust. Like the Allies didn't go to stop Germany to save the Jews. I mean, and so the fact that a political class has come in of Zionists, essentially, which suits, you know, the Western political and economic agenda, which is now why um, this is sort of allowed to happen and persecute other people, but makes it more complicated to allegedly, you know, criticize because it comes from a persecuted people. And it's like, we've got to, I mean, yeah. the identity politics of it, I think really kind of, you know, negate, um, the reality. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's deliberately done in a sense, you know, by, putting certain people into boxes. So by putting Palestinians as Islamists, by putting, you know, every, every single person residing in Israel is actually somebody who, who as a result, you know, their grandparents, um, suffered in the Holocaust. And like I said, that one wrong doesn't, two wrongs don't make a right. It's not an eye mm. for an eye because that makes the whole world blind. Like mm. there is no need to, I think a lot of the time when people make the, the comparison, it's, there's a cynical weaponization of it and it then almost takes away from, which it was, it was a tragic and really, that was unforgivable what happened in, in the Holocaust. But that doesn't then mean that if you bring that up and say, well, we are also being 
you know, there's a, there's a genocide taking place on a similar scale, on a lesser scale, but something that is, that is resembling that in terms of total extermination of a people, people say, oh, how disrespectful of you. But you know, there is, it's, it's the only reason a comparison is ever made is just to, to make it resonate with people. And there is an argument that perhaps maybe that's not the right approach, but it's just the level of, you know, dehumanization that we're seeing, the level of collective punishment, mass murder, you have to, you know, people have to draw those comparisons, but by completely nullifying that and they're also pink, putting people into certain boxes and saying, this is all about, you know, Jewish safety. And, you know, this is, you're pitting Jewish people against Palestinian people and Arabs against Jews and everything. It just makes it, then it does make it complex for them so that they can use the word, the language that this is complicated. It's a, it's a religious clash. It's a religious, you know, narrative one side against the other, because the moment you make it religious, <laughs> everybody knows with religion, there's a bit of a, not a stubbornness, but everybody's quite, you know, firm in their religious beliefs. So it makes it like, well, you know how religious people are. You can't pit this one against that one. And they're never going to speak to each other. So there's a lot of deliberate and very cynical manipulating of the narrative, um, which like you said, it conveniently makes any sort of peace or justice or tangible change, mm-hmm. um, unrealistic and undesirable effectively. Yeah. Ideology gets weaponized to humanize regimes. Yeah. You know? Whereas ideology is meant to reside in communities. And the fact that Judaism has been conflated with Zionism, not just conflated, deliberately so, and that has been pushed in order to make it difficult to critique a settler colonial uh, regime. Um, I mean, there were, yeah, there was, there were sit-ins and collective forms of resistance organized in, in London and up and down the country. And a lot of the work was done by very diligent Jewish organized, um, mm-hmm. groups, you know, particularly Natmore Jewish, um, British Jews against the occupation and multiple Jewish activists. Mm-hmm. And you had multiple, um, outlets in the press, in the mainstream media saying, oh, these anti-Semitic protests, but what basic research will tell you who, who was behind it and who was organizing it. But if you omit that context, the average person, the average Joe reads that and suddenly thinks, ah, oh, see, I've told you it's then Palestinian, so the anti-Semitic Palestinians again. And this conversation has been ongoing in the UK in the last few weeks about who feels safe at home and who doesn't as a result of what's happening. And it's a deliberate attempt to kind of fan the flames of hatred and pit communities against each other. Because if the Jewish community and the Arab community, who are actually allies, if they're up against each other, then it makes the fight, the collective fight against true oppression much harder because Mm. then they're fighting each other. And it's, it's a tactic we've seen for so long, um, which unfortunately shows no it's no signs of waning in his attitude. It's the, the culture wars on steroids and with arms, essentially. And it's the age old divide and conquer tactic. Like we are all allied against colonialism or we all should be. Um, cause there's very few people that actually benefit from it. And if you're kidding, you're, it's like in the same way that people, um, like defend capitalism that because they think they're capitalists, like, no, sweetie, you're not a capitalist. <laughs> you don't know, like this, not, it's not for you. You watched, you watched one Andrew Tate video and suddenly, you, you know, you want to become a billionaire and you think it actually, and then, oh, actually, it's, you know, cause I worked hard and I want to work kind of want to get this. No, you need to exploit someone in order to get that level of wealth. And if you have to do that, that's fine. But your hourly paid job, congratulations, amazing. But that doesn't make you a capitalist or whatever. You know, there's people are ill-informed. People are, Again, it goes back down to just, we can have a whole other conversation about it, about the media and role in, you know, maintaining that hegemony, if you like, and that kind of that idea, the dominant narrative. And again, we've seen on, on economic affairs, on, you know, culture wars, conflicts, whatever it might be, the media just has a role in, you know, keeping everyone divided, keeping everyone on the same page, in a sense, the same page is the dominant narrative. And this time it's been no different. Yes, they are very uncritical. The um, massive journalists kind of running the the campaigns um, and definitively complicit. Um, But as you say, who knows what will come of this, given we've got George W. Bush and Tony Blair walking around, um, earning millions, advising governments and think tanks and all this kind of stuff. And, And recently celebrating Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday, which, which again, people like that are war criminals and it's not, it's not, there's nothing wrong with saying that because they have inflicted so much death, misery, trauma, destruction on people, but they walk, they walk around freely. They still walk around giving advice. They still at think tanks and events and, you know, being paid handsomely for wanting to, you know, 
inflict even more pain and more misery on people. So as I said, it would be, there is a sense amongst a lot of people at this time will be different because a lot of people simply won't forget. And I hope that's the case. And I hope oh, that when too. it is, I hope that if it is Netanyahu and Gallen and all the rest of them, I hope that it's the others who follow them as well into, into those, um, those prison cells and those, <laughs> those courtrooms. Me too. Listen, Hamza, thank you so much for your moral clarity today. This is such a beautiful conversation. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? I, one person who I think has offered a real common sense approach to this um, and throughout in terms of really contextualizing things and putting aside the identity is Dr. Norman Schinkelstein. And I think he's for quite clearly, he's been not deep platform, but only ever appears on certain platforms. Um, because he's, you know, if, if somebody's going to come and completely deconstruct your narrative, why would you want your viewers to see that? But he's someone who has over time, not just in this, in this latest dark chapter, but has all, or has offered a perspective, which is, you know, a completely objective and neutral perspective as somebody who is obviously Jewish and a Holocaust survivor who can look at what's happening in the world, uh, sorry, whose family are Holocaust survivors, um, who can look at the world and kind of dissect it in a way, which with some moral clarity. Hamza, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.